it snowed. So the weather has been insane the last, this weekend. Yesterday, it was so warm that I went on a hike in a t-shirt and I walked out my front door this morning to snow fully covering the entire ground. That is very similar to how LA behaves at this time of year. Not quite that extreme. Like we don't have snow, but just that one day I'm in a tank top, one day I'm in a winter coat thing. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. It was weird. I didn't realize it was going to snow. So I walked out and I opened my front door to take Malcolm this morning and out loud went, boo? <laughs> no one was around me. <laughs> <laughs> you were a cartoon for a moment. <laughs> I was like a full cartoon character for a moment. <laughs> Do you ever – I I want so badly to be animated in the style – of like hell of a boss or like older Nickelodeon yes. or g- g- Cartoon Network or whatever the just the the very flat two dimensional mm-hmm. non people people yes with the crazed proportions and the fun movements and the jerky fairly odd parents situation I love that wow I forgot about that yeah I always think of the teacher doing the like. <laughs> contorting his body thing <laughs> or like how they're always in three-quarter profile no matter what they're doing their face is just always three quarters one way or the other i think i just you just broke my brain i don't think i ever processed that that's how they were drawn oh man i'm gonna need to process that for a little bit yeah, translating things into 2D is, is fascinatingly brain-breaking when you try to undo it. Yeah. You're like, okay, now be three-dimensional, <laughs> she said about her personality. <laughs> <laughs> We're thriving. <laughs> Actually, by all accounts, yesterday you were. Yes, Rowan knows this. I had a great day yesterday. Just I woke up had my coffee, and it just kicked me into gear. I got so much work for the podcast done, and I was texting her about it. And then I got up from doing all of my work for the podcast and went on a three-hour hike with my friends and the dogs. And I felt so good. And the worst part is after the (laughs) hike and all that exercise, coming home and realizing how mentally and physically good I felt, that was truly a disappointment because that means that exercise really is good for me and it does make a difference and I sleep better and I feel better. And now I have that knowledge really firmly confirmed. Yeah. And I want to go back to not knowing that and just being like, well, exercise won't make a difference. Yeah, yeah. You want to – I want the the healthy best version of things to be more akin to a bear hibernating than mm-hmm. like a dog going for a run. Yes, I would love that. I want the answer to always be take a nap. <laughs> I don't nap as well <laughs> as you. I need to perfect the fine art of the nap. Here's what I do. I use naps as an excuse to maladaptive daydream, which is to say that I, quote unquote, like, I'm going to go nap. Do I sleep? Sometimes. Do I put on ambient sounds and just write stories in my head for an hour? Yes, that is what I do. Well, okay, so if I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm not just, like, hit the pillow unconscious tired, I I do kind of scroll through my brain like Netflix. Like, what dream am I going to write until I'm actually unconscious? What's the adventure today? Yes, I have a few stories in my head, and I just am like, which one are we going back to? 
And that's where I come up with a lot of ideas for Thea and Rosalind, too. Oh, the best Thea and Rosalind sass is written just before falling asleep. I know that because I get your texts and you get mine at very inappropriate hours. (laughs) The other day, you texted me at like three in the morning, my time. In my defense, Malcolm had just woken me up to take him out, but I did respond immediately. And within seconds, you yelled at me to go to sleep. I didn't yell. I didn't even exclamation point or period. I don't think I punctuated at all. No, you didn't. It was actually very gentle and kind. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a yell way of texting, um, but that actually, okay, so all caps texting, Uh which I do a fair amount with uh, various words, but I see that as raising volume, not raising anger. Of course. It's an excited thing. If I'm really upset, I'm not doing all caps. I'm too serious for that. Right. I want tiny font. Like, if I'm upset, I am Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada whisper speaking. Ooh, that would be good. Mm-hmm. With the haircut and the sunglasses. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable. We're the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history and mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the podcast and join our awesome, creative, possibly occult community like Ellen F. did, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Welcome, Ellen, to the Willing and Fable family. Actually, very welcome. You just joined mere minutes ago, and we're so happy to have you. (laughs) Yes. We're really glad we caught in time to thank you on this episode. This is the same Ellen who did that awesome drawing of us when we had our photo shoot with an ethereal fire, and we're so excited to be able to talk to you directly in our Discord about all of the cool stuff that you're working on. We're still gushing about the fan art. That's the coolest. It is the coolest. (laughs) You can also support us in a fast, free way by telling your mom about our show. We're available on all platforms, and listening can be as simple as asking a smart home to play the latest episode of Willing and Fable podcast. So go to your mom's house and have her Google Echo whatever the heck play an episode, because two out of two moms agree that we're the best podcast in existence. That is true. It is very, very true. Although what's funny is my mom's smart device won't play our podcast when she tells it to. Here's why. It's because it's connected to my Spotify, and my Spotify has a playlist I made called Willing and Fable. I know. I hate that playlist. It ruins me every time. (laughs) You have to rename it. (laughs) All right. I'll rename it to just Dark Academia. (laughs) Or like the Fable and Willing podcast. I don't know. (laughs) I'm ruining lives here, people. My parents' home is so deeply entrenched in the smart home midness that in any room, you could walk in and say, play the podcast, and it will, wherever my parents left off, which is, it is the the modern tech version of having your art on the fridge. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the other way you can support us is by telling us your favorite hot beverage for the winter season, so we can sip on something delicious while we research. But no matter what you do, we appreciate having you here. I'm drinking a matcha right now. Ooh, I'm just drinking water with uh, some lemon, so. That is smart. Mine is not a good matcha. It's from a very expensive, fancy coffee place in L.A. 
and I am disappointed. That's a bummer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm drinking it anyway because I need the caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So before we dive in today, another huge thank you to our Discord community because a few episodes ago we discussed our excitement about us both purchasing a book about writing by Orson Scott Card. Well, huge bummer. Turns out he is incredibly homophobic, among other things. Mm -hmm. He once said in the Mormon Times that gay marriage, quote, marks the end of democracy in America. So anyway, this is why we can't have nice things. I'm really bummed because I read a lot of his books growing up, and it would mm -hmm. be nice if people whose work I liked weren't terrible people. But more importantly, we are taking that book off our recommendations page. And seriously, such a massive thank you to our community because you guys are always looking out for us and we really appreciate it. Right. It was brought to our attention in the most gentle and helpful way, which I really appreciated. There was also like a collective like, oh, bummer. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. It's definitely a collective sigh that could be heard across the Discord. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. So actually, on that note, if you are sitting here, dear listener, going, oh, but if they want a book about writing, here's this one by a BIPOC queer person. Like, give us that recommendation. Please. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. All right. I'm starting us off today. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, content warning for my portion of this episode. The mythology of Kelpies that I'm covering involves child death, and my research and my story today will include those themes. Okay. <laughs> I have a confession to make before I mm -hmm. start my section. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think everyone knows that I am a bit of a horse girl. I think they know by this point. I... I thought so, but sometimes when I'm talking to even my close friends, they do like a double take, like, what? Because there's that very specific genre of girl that is the horse girl. Yeah, you, well, you aren't horse girl in that, like, every weekend you're going to tournaments and you're doing, it's just, you have a horse and you love horseback riding. And you love horses. Right, right. So I am horse girl in the way that I played with my mom's hand-me-down horse figurines, the way that people played with Barbies. Like, I pretended my bike was a horse when I oh, was yeah. little. Who didn't pretend their bike was a horse? Honestly, if you didn't, what were you even You missed doing? out. Although spaceship yeah. is also acceptable. Like, just not a bike. <laughs> yeah. Or if it is a bike, it's because you were pretending you were a spy. That was what we did. Ooh. Right. Okay. So the bike is incorporated into the narrative. But if you were me, the bike was a horse. Yeah. And I grew up with horses. But I, as Tracy said, was not like the fancy matching outfit competition horse girl. I was like the muddy flannel trail riding horse girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Tracy, this is your reminder from me, from my mom. Uh, they, yes. they, you still have a standing invitation to go riding. I know. <laughs> I'm waiting for the weather to warm up, but now that I found out that the horse that I am set to ride is rideable, yes, I am very excited. Trust me, it's on my brain. Yeah, I think about it constantly. She was having a mo. Actually, this is really charming. So there's a horse at the barn. Uh, her name is Apple. She's a little older. She's perfect because like she's unflappable and she loves mm -hmm. everyone. And for a while, this guy was leasing her, and he would put um, this 
dye in her hair. There's like vegetable dye that you can mm-hmm. use to yep. color a horse's hair. And he would do it rainbow on her mane. And when I tell you this horse was overjoyed because Apple's a white horse. But when her mane was rainbow, she got so much attention from kids. Oh, that's so cute. And kids mean snacks and pets. Yeah. And she got to be a rainbow pony that would go around and kids would squeal with joy. Um, So would I. So I don't think she'll be rainbow when you're riding her, but I kind of hope she is. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll show up with some vegetable dye for her. She gets so excited. She knows what's happening. Like, so sweet. <laughs> so anyway, all of this is to say I'm covering Kelpies, which are basically like punk rock goth fairy murder horses. So I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wanted to do this for a while. Forever. <laughs> so according to Historic UK, quote, a Kelpie is a shape-changing aquatic spirit of Scottish legend. Its name may derive from the Scotch Gaelic words Kelpeak and Kolpak meaning heifer or colt. Kelpies are said to haunt rivers and streams, usually in the shape of a horse. But beware, these are malevolent spirits. The Kelpie may appear as a tame pony beside a river. It is particularly attractive to children, but they should take care, for once on its back, its sticky, magical hide will not allow them to dismount. Once trapped in this way, the Kelpie will drag the child into the river and then eat him. These water horses can also appear in human form. They may materialize as a beautiful young woman, hoping to lure young men to their death. Or they might take on the form of a hairy human lurking by the river, ready to jump out at unsuspecting travelers and crush them to death in a vice-like grip. End quote. Okay, danger horses. Danger water horses. Pretty much. Kelpies are members of the expansive pantheon of creatures that exist in the areas settled by the Celts. And that definition that I read with a few words changed here and there is pretty much the definition that exists across the whole of the internet and books Mm -hmm. that summarize these creatures very simply. Which is pretty interesting, actually, because so often we come across more inconsistencies in details, which is not to say that there aren't a variety in the Kelpie stories. But in the modern world, there is this very consistent imagery that just has endured in popular culture. And I think of a lot of the times folks think of Kelpies from Fantastic Beasts, that movie from the kind of Harry Potter cinematic universe. Yeah, I've never seen it. So I I couldn't tell you a single darn thing about it other than that there are, in fact, beasts and they are fantastical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I mention Kelpies, that's what people mention to me. Okay. That makes sense. That's kind of the rule, right? I read multiple times that every lock in Scotland has a Kelpie. And though the Kelpie myth I'm focusing on today is primarily Scottish, there are tales of water horses across the UK and surrounding countries. And while some use the phrase Kelpie to describe a myriad of mythological water horses, this is sort of a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square situation for some people. Okay. Shetland has the Shupilty, Orkney has the Nuggle, and the Isle of Man has the Kabul Ushte. 
There's also the Ethushka, which is said to be more vicious than a Kelpie. And where a Kelpie would live in rivers and streams in this version of the mythology, the Mm -hmm. Ethushka lives in locks and seas. And while Kelpies are usually black, these horses would be white. And a rider of the Ethushka is safe as long as the beast doesn't smell the sea. And that would be what would cause its hide to become sticky and it would drown its victim. Interesting. So I can pretend while I'm riding Apple the white horse that she's a mythical creature. You really aren't going to be able to pretend she's any variety of Kelpie because she has... is so sweet and gentle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Like, if the stuffed animal horse of your childhood were a real horse, that's what Apple is. Our horse Shay is black, so you could maybe get away with it. She also loves the water. We used to have a horse. He was massive. Uh, He was a Tennessee walker. He was all black, and his name was Pagan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he loved men. He, like... Just wanted to hang out with men, like human men. He would follow them around and (laughs) very wholesomely just be like, hey, I'm a guy. I'm I'm just a lad hanging out with the dudes and the bros. (laughs) Um, But Pagan didn't know he was huge, so he would walk close to trees and knock your knees. Oh, no. (laughs) So you had to be on top of that. And he would see water and then just all of a sudden – you'd be in the water up to your calves because he'd just be like, hey, this is fun. (laughs) So he just really didn't think about the fact that anyone was riding him. He was just always in his own world doing his own thing. Yeah, you know, (laughs) he was related to Trigger in a couple places in his lineage, which is like very, "Eh, he's so smart, except he was the dumbest smart horse (laughs) I've ever known. Yep. Like he could... Open gates. He would just open gates and be like, ha now I'm where the greener grass is, suckas. But then he would also, like, put his leg through a fence and knock it down and be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. And you'd come up to him <laughs> and he'd turn around and move and be unstuck. <laughs> like, so you were never stuck. <laughs> oh, pagan. He was the goodest boy. <laughs> he sounds like the goodest boy. He, no thought had empty in the way that uh, Malcolm is. Yeah, I was say, he sounds a lot like Malcolm. Giant, <laughs> happy, loving the lads, no thoughts had empty. Yeah. He's also kind of a bully because he was a big boy horse, but a bully in like a, like a, could everyone please just be near me so I know that everyone's okay kind of way. Mm. <laughs> it was very cute. Anyway, sorry. I love my horses. Okay. So <laughs> growing up, I had my mom's copy of Fairies by Alan Lee and Brian Fruit, which I still have. And I would say that this book is a pillar of my personality. Mm-hmm. And I can so clearly see the through line of me young kid who can't read looking at the pictures growing up into adult me with you having this podcast. Yep. I I can too. Absolutely. So, Tracy, this is the picture of a Kelpie drawn by Brian Frood in that book. And this book is kind of like an encyclopedia of Faye. Mm -hmm. This, I think about this image at least once a month, if not more. This picture is beautiful, so it's all very sepia-toned, very tan. 
and it's the head of a horse poking up out of the water. You can kind of see the reflection of it in the water with a couple of reeds in the middle of the frame. And then there's just this little bird right sitting on top of its head and the horse's eyes are looking up as, the, as though it's looking up at the bird and the bird's looking down at the horse and it's just, it's, it's very sweet. It's a very sweet image and it's beautifully, beautifully drawn. It's so good. And someone snapped this from the book. So the reads are kind of dividing the pages. This is truly like the open page mm, of the book. Okay. I found a flatter, clearer image of just the horse with the bird. But the reason I chose a snapped picture of this book is because if you look in the upper left, there's a little image, tiny, like pencil drawing of what looks like an evil frog creature coming mm-hmm. out of the water. It's the nose of the Kelpie. So in this book... The implication is that it's just sticking up its little nose. It could look like a different creature. It does. It looks like a little frog. And then as soon as you said that, oh, you can see that it's just the tilted nose and mouth of a horse. I think about this all the time. I spent a lot of my childhood catching frogs. I think about this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that's so brilliant. So I had to show you. But also, we have a classic voluptuous, long-haired, naked white lady sitting on some rocks the way that you and I would, like, lean on the couch. Oh, it's very relaxed. This is The Kelpie by Herbert James Draper. It's from 1913, and it is that classic mythology is naked white ladies type painting. It is. I I will say it's beautifully painted it's clearly at uh either sunrise or sunset you get that golden hour lighting Mm. and it looks like it's an oil painting so everything's very beautiful but very soft and very dreamy and the colors really i would say it's just kind of a green green for the trees and the water and then some browns and grays for the rocks and then just the naked white lady with some white fabric around her i didn't know that this was painting of a kelpie when i first saw it i kept being like why is this on all of the pages (laughs) because i don't associate kelpie mythology with like luring young men specifically Mm -hmm. i love this painting because a that place totally exists in pennsylvania like i've hiked and found that location b i could live that life happily just lazing around (laughs) drown a man occasionally <laughs> you are the, the the witch in the woods of your dreams. Right, but critically, and I don't know why this would be, but she's sitting on kind of a bunch of white fabric, which makes me so happy for her cuz rocks are rough, man. Like they're not comfortable. No. So great work, Mr. Draper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So despite the variety of shape-shifting abilities, Kelpies really are known for being water horses. In some depictions, Kelpies have the top portion of a horse with mermaid-like tails on the bottom. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen that a lot. In in that case, the implication would be that they're not going to fully leave the water. Uh, there are a lot of Kelpies that are lacking their back half. Mm-hmm. Um. There are also a lot of depictions of Kelpies where they look like sort of undead horses or like they're created from nature in ways or Mm -hmm. like as if they were the body of a horse that was left to decay by the water. Mm -hmm. There are a few key ways that victims in stories have identified Kelpies 
ruling out the full-on phantom, like, skeleton horse obviousness. So, in their primary horse form, a Kelpie's mane will be dripping water. It'll likely be tangled with weeds because they just came out of the lock or the stream. In Aberdeenshire, they have a mane of serpents. Uh, in other places, their hooves may be backwards. Mm-hmm. They may have silvery eyes, which horses can have. They can have blue eyes, but it's not very common. Mm-hmm. Okay. In their human form, they may still retain their hooves. Uh, they're also likely covered in water. Or in a male Kelpie might be particularly hairy. A Dictionary of Celtic Mythology by James McKillop describes a human Kelpie that looks like a, quote, rough, shaggy man who leaps behind a solitary rider gripping and crushing him. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Which I'd not heard that story anywhere else. It's interesting to hear a Kelpie usually considered horse, but is a man and just pulling people off of horses. I, my understanding of Kelpies was always water horse. I always pictured them with like seaweed in their manes or with a kind of mermaid tail. And, and that is about the extent of my imagination of Kelpies. Yeah, I, even though objectively I knew that they could transform into people, I just like sliced that out of my remembering. Mm Mm-hmm. So a person can capture or disarm a Kelpie. I was always told that a human who is able to bridle one of these fearsome beasts can utilize their incredible abilities. It's a wild fey creature. The bridle entraps it. It very much fits into lore of wild horse domesticated Mm -hmm. by a human. And they are said to have the strength of 10 horses, which makes them incredibly valuable for farming or for battle. Yeah. A popular folktale describes a laird who performed just this trick. Laird Morphy used a bridle to ensnare a kelpie, using its incredible strength to haul the stones that he used to build his castle. And when the task was done, he released the spirit, but it was too late. The kelpie left issuing a curse, sore back and sore bones, driving the Lord Morphy's stones. The Lord Morphy will never thrive as long as the Kelpie is alive. Ooh. And it was this curse that led to, supposedly, the extinction of the Laird's family line. Ooh, that's dark. But my research kept turning up stories where a Kelpie naturally has a bridal And a potential victim had to take it off to gain power over them, even sometimes a saddle. And I was really surprised by that because, you know, in my head, why would a fey being have a a bridle? That's a Mm man-made thing. But why is that any more surprising than uh, anything else? Like a little red cap man whose hat drips blood all the time. So I thought about it for a while. And it makes sense because the Kelpie's whole thing with being a horse is to try to be as appealing as humanly possible. Okay. As appealing as mythological horsely possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my favorite way to describe things. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to be appealing to people. And if mm-hmm. you see a horse with a bridle, at least I as a trail rider, 
I've come across horses in the woods that have bridles and saddles on and grabbed them or hopped up on them because I know that they bolted from their rider who's somewhere nearby. Mm. So it would not be weird for me to grab a hold of that horse. And once you touch it, you're stuck because its hide is sticky. Yeah. I would like to double back on that, actually. Uh, If anyone recalls Tracy's episode on Rasputin, we decided that anything sticky is evil. Did we decide anything sticky was evil? Stickiness is an evil trait. Name something sticky that isn't evil. Or at least the the sticky part of it isn't evil. Because, okay, here, here, here. You have a a much stronger aversion to sticky things than I do. (laughs) Okay, hear me out. <laughs> you love cotton candy. Everyone, Tracy yes. loves cotton candy. I really love cotton Ridiculous. candy. Ridiculous. Okay, but the sticky factor with cotton candy is horrendous. Have you ever taken a child, given that child cotton candy, and then had to deal with its sticky little hands? That's the problem with the child more than the cotton candy. Ah, yes. All children are evil. <laughs> children are sticky, but sticky is not evil. <laughs> you just really hate sticky. You don't love stickers. You don't love sticky things. And that's okay. <laughs> but your aversion to sticky things is much stronger than mine. I can get past, like, stickiness in a lot of scenarios. In 2021, I endeavored to break my uh, aversion to stickers, and my laptop case now is covered in stickers. <laughs> so. And how do you feel about that? People can do hard things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Highland Titles actually describes a few tales that feature the pre-bridled Kelpie element. And before I go into this, Highland Titles is where Tracy and I, quote-unquote, purchased land through their land conservation project to become Lady and Lady of Glencoe. We love Highland Titles. (laughs) Yes, we do. I have our title framed in my house. So they describe a tale that I found across a myriad of sources, and it is not unlike The Little Mermaid in a lot of ways. Okay, so once upon a time in Bara, there was a super hot young man who happened to be a lonely Kelpie. He transformed in order to woo the local super hot young girl. Mm-hmm. The girl knows what's up and takes off the man's silver necklace, which she knows is actually his bridle of power. And this turns the Kelpie into his horse form, and the girl takes him home to her father's farm, where she puts him to work for a year, utilizing his strength of ten normal horses. And then for some reason, after a year, she's like, this is long enough. So the hot girl takes the enslaved magical horse to the local wise man, and the wise man says, hey, Give the Kelpie back his necklace, you stealing little brat. So our Kelpie turns back into a hot soft boy. And the wise man says, hey, magical soft boy, would you rather be a mortal or a man-eating water horse? And the Kelpie turns to the girl and says, if I were a mortal, would you be my wife? And the hot girl thinks back to all the manual labor that she forced the Kelpie to do, and she says yes. So the wise man turns the Kelpie mortal, and the two hot people live happily ever after. What the heck? It's kind of nice that the story is about a, a man experiencing all of that, though, instead of a woman. There's a lot of Kelpie human transformations that are men. There's a lot of male Kelpies that are wooing hot young virgins wandering through the forest. As they do. That is what they do for most of the day. Right, right. 
<laughs> I just uh, why why you she made you work in the fields for a year against your will and and the wise man who's supposedly wise says do you, did you enjoy your time with this gal or do you want to go back to eating people and he's like hey will you marry me and and that's the thing that seals the deal you don't want to live forever haunting the lock come on some people have different priorities i'm with you i would choose <laughs> to be a man-eating horse but we gotta let some people just live their bliss <laughs> There's another story that takes place at Loch Ness, which is a notoriously Kelpie-occupied lake. Mm -hmm. Some people think the Loch Ness monster may actually just be a Kelpie. Okay, I can see it. Which, I mean, I don't know how big Kelpies get. I imagine at least as big as a Clydesdale, but that still seems a little small for a Loch Ness monster. Anyway, <laughs> in the 19th century... The Highlander James McGregor took the Kelpie that haunted the woods by surprise. He cut off the bridle that held the creature's power, and without which the Kelpie would wither and die within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So the Kelpie followed McGregor home, trying to bargain with the man to gain back his bridle. Seeing a cross on the man's front door, the Kelpie laughed because the man would be unable to enter the Christian home with the fey bridle in his hands. But McGregor was clever. He tossed the bridle into his home through the window, and the Kelpie was forced to slink back into the woods to die. And the story goes that the bridle is passed down through the family and possesses healing powers, which is very good, because some stories say that a bridle like that can turn a mortal man into a horse. And that's pretty spicy, actually. <laughs> I'm team Kelpie in this story. That guy just, he, that, that Kelpie wasn't doing anything to him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, there is so much overlap between Kelpie lore and Selkie lore. Like there's this mm -hmm. element of like, I'm going to steal a thing from you and then you are indebted to me and you, you can't go anywhere. It's. Growing up, I mixed up Kelpies and Selkies all the time. They they sound similar. And they're shape-shifting water creatures. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. I love the title of this next section. Uh. <laughs> I'm singing it to the tune of Cotton Eye Joe in my head. Was that the intention? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to say it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Kelpie-eyed Joe. <laughs> I... Titled this section at probably roughly 3 a.m. one night. And when I'm doing a section that is where the myth started and where the myth ended up, I always title it. Where did you come from? Where did you go? <laughs> <laughs> iconic. Truly, that's iconic behavior. <laughs> so there's speculation that Kelpies come from horse sacrifices in Scandinavia. And then that practice traveled as people migrated or it could have come from the appeasement of gods of these bodies of water who may have evolved to have the appearance of kelpies or mm -hmm. the kelpies may have served them there's also the practical element to these stories and this really is the crux of the issue with a kelpie young women shouldn't talk to strangers okay great classic 
folktale. We know. Mm -hmm. But with the Kelpie story in particular, it is teaching young children that they need to stay away from dangerous bodies of water. Mm -hmm. Because when you think of the geography of Scotland, there is... There are locks, streams everywhere. A lot of people in Scotland live on islands. And when you cannot have your eyes on your children all the time, it is it is a very good tool to teach them that there's a very, very scary horse. Yes, you will see that connection to the topic I covered today of the idea of put a monster in the water to stop kids from going in it. 100%. And the Kelpie resembling a horse grounds it in everyday life so well because Mm -hmm. this story was very prevalent in agricultural communities that had and relied on horses so much of scotland's industry actually was very reliant on horses so to make the creature so similar to something that a child would see every day Mm -hmm. makes the monster even more ever present i wonder if it made kids scared of horses though I don't know if they even had the opportunity to be as scared of horses. Like, when you rely on a horse when there's no other options, I don't know if... I wonder if it's just like, I'm scared, and your mom's like, that's such a bummer, because this is your (laughs) whole life. (laughs) Yeah. And in the same way that Selkie stories were sometimes used to account for what happened when a loved one may have died at sea. Many folklorists say that Kelpie stories were a way to account for children who passed drowning. Mm -hmm. As time passed and Christianity arrived in Scotland in the 6th century, Kelpie lore adjusted to accommodate it. So a Kelpie in human form keeping its hooves came from or was later associated with Satan. Yep, that makes sense. Christian monks wrote these stories down, and previously it only existed in oral tradition, so suddenly the entrapping bridles had crosses embossed on them, and potential victims who were carrying Bibles could escape, and a blacksmith's iron could ward off a fey being, and and now Kelpies can be killed with silver bullets. Yeah, yep, that makes sense. All of that tracks. In The Magic Arts in Celtic Britain by Lewis Spence, he describes that a Kelpie shot with a silver bullet falls dead and turns into, quote, turf and a soft mass like jellyfish. Mmm, gross. Sticky. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that that would be sticky. I think it'd be slimy. Slimy is worse than sticky. Both. Both. Both is bad. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) I think that that detail also is very helpful in the lore because if you've ever been along a cold coast, there's always little globs of something Mm -hmm. ocean going on. Oh, all the time. So if you say, hey, look, that pile of seaweed is clearly evidence of a kelpie then you're going to have an even more terrified child. All right. For my story today, I am tapping into what so so fascinated me, I guess, about this story 
from early on because I was reading about Kelpies when I was little. Mm -hmm. And Tracy and I would go out into the woods all by ourselves often. All the time. I grew up with a pond, a big pond, a very large pond. Yes. And streams. And so Kelpies were very present. They just were for me (laughs) all the time. So content warning reminder again. Stories of Kelpies, as well as mine, involve child death. Okay. I want a pony, Isla said for the 9,000th time since they'd gotten into the car that morning. Early on, her father had forbidden her from asking, Are we there yet? So this new question had taken its place. Isla couldn't see from her car seat in the back, but her parents grit their teeth and sighed each running through a silent mantra about gentle parenting and the difficulties of a big move for a young child. Isla had spent all of her seven years living in a postage-stamp-sized home in Morningside, Edinburgh. But with the world's successful transition to full-time remote work, her parents had packed up everything they owned and purchased a four-bedroom home in Barra. We can have so much more for so much less her parents would say over and over again. To Isla, the replacement of tightly packed buildings with vast rolling hills surely meant there was the space and the means for a pony. Her mother was wondering if a rabbit would suffice. The little girl's questions did not let up for the rest of the drive, or for their drizzly move into the new home, or when the impenetrable darkness fell across the house at night. None of the family had ever experienced a darkness so complete. There was no light pollution or the sounds of distant cars. In the night, there was nothing but the family and the land and the vast, dark sky. It felt equally as empty during the day. School wouldn't start up for another week, so Isla's parents were left juggling the chaos of moving in, setting up work computers, and entertaining their excitable child. There were no neighborhood children, Isla's mother had checked twice, and they couldn't stand the thought of their daughter staring at the TV all day, so they sent her outside. It was raining. It was always raining since they'd come, but Isla's parents, whose gazes looked a bit manic, unpacked her galoshes and a coat and said, go find an adventure. Her first day out was uneventful, owing to the fact that Isla was too scared to venture past the crumbling wall that marked their small front yard. The second day was the same, though she had found a toad in what was clearly meant to be a garden. The third and fourth days passed, with the little girl becoming more adventurous by the hour. And by the fifth day, Isla snatched some paper from the printer and drew up the plans for the pony. She started with where they would keep him. There was another field marked with crumbling stones. A few of them, actually. There were fields, as far as Isla could see, in three out of four directions. She included a list of reasons for why a pony would give her good enrichment. Reason number one, because you move me away from my friends and a pony is a good friend. And she even used her glitter paints to craft a very appealing depiction of her future pony. It was the color rainbow, had a shimmering mane, and according to the picture, three long legs, and one somewhat shorter one. On the sixth day, just after lunchtime, Isla bounded into her parents' shared office and began her presentation. She started, Hi, hello, thank you for coming. On today's agenda, 
She'd heard her mom use that phrase when work was serious. On today's agenda, we're going to be discussing my future pony and why I need one because you moved me away from my friends and my school and it's only fair. Isla's father, who had headphones in, muttered something to his monitor and said, Let's not do this right now, sweet pea. He cast a look at his wife. For my first slide, Isla continued, holding up her printer paper. Honey, we can't do this right now, we're working her mother chimed in. Isla was thrown by their responses. She, too, was clearly working, but she would not be stopped. And because, uh, because uh, for my first reason, there's a field on every side of the house. Isla's father said, I'm sorry, to the computer and stood, slamming his laptop shut in the process. I told you we are working. He scooped Isla up under the arms and walked her to the front door. For her part, the little girl had disintegrated into angry, incoherent tears and cries of, I want to go home. I miss my friends. You always ignore me. I want to go home. Her father threw open the front door and put Isla down, shoving her boots and coat out onto the step with the little girl. He said, when we are working, you have to be quiet. If we don't work, you can't have a pony. Stop your whining and go make a friend. Find an adventure, but for the love of God, be quiet. Isla sat on the front stair and finished crying, crumpling and uncrumpling the papers from her presentation. The misty rain was causing the glittery paint to bleed, and it was running down the little girl's hands in streams of technicolor shimmer. With a huff, she threw the papers down, shoved her damp socks into her galoshes, grabbed her coat, and set off. Isla had no trouble wandering far from the house today. She was imagining what would happen if she ran away and how long the crushed-up granola bar in her pocket would last. She crawled over a few of the old stone walls that checkered the never-ending fields and chatted with herself until her anger at her parents morphed into a pretend game about a princess trapped in a faraway land ruled by evil trolls. She was so deeply invested in her own imaginary game that Isla was unsurprised when she made it to the edge of a lock. It fit right in with the escape scene she was acting with dramatic moments of song that sounded suspiciously like one of her animated movies. She must have made it pretty far. The ground was soft and spongy, and the edge of the lock was a gentle slope of reeds and muck. There were some large, round, white stones and bleached sticks poking out of the water here and there, and the wind was adding a current to the small lock. How will we get away from here, Sir Knight? The trolls took the car and the horses all ran away. A deep whinny came from behind Isla and she spun around, tripping on the bank of the lock and landing one of her shoes deep into the mud. Isla was shocked at the power of her own imagination for a second. She'd never imagined sounds that clearly before. And then she noticed. There was a large, black horse peering at her from a few feet away. The creature's head was low, and it blinked at her with massive, heavy-lashed eyes. She stood unmoving for a very long time before it nickered and pawed the ground, proving that it was real, with the prince it left in the mud with its hooves. She could see the steam of its breath rising in the cold air. Isla let out a soft little, oh, and stepped forward, hand outstretched, and moving slowly. She expected the horse to step back or even rear like that one in the movie, 
but it didn't move as she came closer. The large black beast only tossed its head and let out a sort of huff as she sidestepped towards it. Who do you belong to? Where's your mum? But even as she was asking, Isla was 100% certain that she was this pony's new mum, and that when she walked him back home, there would be absolutely nothing her parents could do except offer carrots and begin building a barn. Isla was so excited that she was nearly shaking, and when the horse bent down as she came closer, she was beginning to think that perhaps she'd walked through a fairy ring or fell through a mirror, and this was her real life, and being quiet during work was over forever. She got onto the horse's back easily, despite his massive size. The horse got down quite low for her, which was a clever trick. Someone must have trained him well. As soon as she mounted, she felt stuck in place, as if this was exactly right, and she'd been riding horses for her whole life. She imagined how impressed her father would be at the adventure she'd found, and she giggled when the horse began walking toward the water. I live just over there, she pointed in the direction she'd come. The horse had no reins, so she was at a loss for how to steer and hoped such a clever pony would follow her lead. But he kept walking toward the water, slowly squelching through the muck, past the reeds, until the lapping waves of the lock were skimming his belly. And still the horse didn't stop. They'd come to the water so quickly, Isla was getting nervous. She did not want to swim in the dark water. She wriggled and tried to slide off, but her legs were stuck fast to the horse's wet fur. One of her galoshes, filled with water, slid off her foot down into the depths. The horse seemed to cast a sidelong glance when she began pushing against its back with all her strength, wriggling and thrashing and pulling its mane. Stop! Isla was crying now. Pony, stop it! Stop! But the horse did not stop. It kept slowly walking deeper and deeper into the water, as unbothered by his flailing rider as he might be by a cool breeze. Back in their home... There was the chime of a video call and the murmur of an evening meeting identifying the overall company goals for the next quarter. On the front step, now soaked through with rain and turning to pulp, there was a pile of printer paper. The top page, scrawled with thick pink crayon, read, Isla's Pony. But the girl's painting was fading away with every passing moment and splashing raindrop, the shimmering figure of her pony disappearing in the water. Gut-wrenching is the only word I have. I mean, that was beautifully written. That child was so freaking cute. I was shaking my head the whole time you were reading. Rowan can confirm because she's so cute and sweet. That was beautifully written, but my heart hurts. Yeah, it's it's really tough. I... In researching this mythology, it there is a very clear evolution of the Kelpie story and who its victims are as Christianity had an increased influence. This kind of idea mm -hmm. that, like, if you were a good person, you wouldn't be harmed or caught up in this. But right. the original mythologies that were more indicative of nature... There is no, you're good, you get only good things. Uh, and there aren't even necessarily, you follow the rules, you get only good things. Right. And I think that the 
the thing that draws me to the Kelpie story that makes me keep coming back as frustrating and sad as it is, is that the mythology that is not reliant on goodness is just very feral. There's just like this Mm -hmm. dark hunger to it. And it's wild and it's, it's, it reflects nature and it reflects the unfairness of life. And I, I think that's such an interesting difference between the two of us and the way that we consume and appreciate stories is you want, and you, from my experience, really love all kinds of stories, the heartfelt, the sad, the the range of human emotions, the range of human experiences. And my brain is, I am always thinking through the worst case scenario of everything. And so I'm like, I just want my stories to be escapes and triumphant and happy. And you can see that in the way that we choose to write stories for this podcast. It's true. You do always give us the happy endings. And I think I rarely do. (laughs) I don't know. I've had this story, this specific version of this story in my head for quite a while with this little Mm -hmm. girl. and, And I both love her and love her undoing as frustrating as it is. And Kelpie mythology, like many mythologies that involve children, there are a lot of mythologies from this region that involve children. And you, if you look at them, there's like a, hey, kids, please stay safe, make good mm-hmm. choices. But it's also, you know, children are the most innocent among us. And seeing what people do to them, what happens to them, how they are affected by mythology is a, a really clear way into what the story is aiming for mm-hmm. anyway i love her um but there you yeah, go i love her too <laughs> i love the kelpie too yeah that was, it was a really good story like the kelpie in it isn't it's kind of an, an in some ways a neutral figure the way that you wrote it yeah there so there are kelpies uh in mythology that speak english that speak mm-hmm. human language and there are kelpies that really don't um, and actually, right. I should say, so there there are a lot of stories with Kelpies that involve children, but there's a very famous story um, that tells of ten children, and nine of the children mount mount the Kelpie and are and are drowned and eaten. And in this telling, uh, the Kelpie will leave the the innards on the shore as like a this is my territory. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. It's a very predatory thing. Um, and sometimes the artwork of it will be nine children literally on this horse at one time because some stories say like the horse can expand and accommodate many riders. Um, right. There's a kind of Pied Piper element to it. But the 10th child goes to pet the horse and touches it and its finger gets stuck and the kid has to cut off his finger to escape. Oh, God. Okay. And there's a Christianization of that story, which is, you know, the the kid named Christ or oh, touched yeah, yeah. his Bible and then was able to escape. But the the more, I, again, I say kind of feral version where the kid has to lose a finger to get away. In many versions of the story, the kid is around the other nine kids who are already trapped. Mm-hmm. And in other versions, this happens over a period of time. And I think that those the 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 different ways of examining that, how time affects that story, how the vulnerability of the victims affects that story, how cleverness does or does not serve the children. Right, right. Because as it's Christianized, it's less about the cleverness of the escape and 
more about the virtues of the person. Exactly. And I also want to note in this story, one of the things that keeps bringing me back to it is horses are prey animals. They are herd-bound prey herbivores. They eat grass. Mm -hmm. Everything that they do is dictated by the fact that something is going to try to eat them. Their eyes are on the sides of their head so that they can see long distances. They can sleep standing so that they're never as vulnerable. They don't wander far from one another. And yet we have this creature that is so clearly predatory and not just predatory like, I'm hungry, I need a snack. Predatory like, I ate you and look, now the lock is surrounded by skulls. So you Mm -hmm. know I'm here. And... I don't know what it is that keeps pulling me into that. Maybe because I know horses and I watch horses behave very fearfully. Right. Because of their survival. It's just so interesting to take a creature that looks in every way like it is vulnerable to the will of humans and flipping it. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's Kelpies, who I love and adore, and I'm so glad that we've covered them now because – I wanted to for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, that was really great. And last little bit of detail. Tracy, I'm adding to our world tour. Mm-hmm. There is a famous sculpture called the Kelpies in the Helix Park between Falkirk and Grangemouth. Please don't at me, Scotland. I'm so sorry. Um, they were designed by a Scottish sculptor, Andy Scott, and he specializes in galvanized steelwork, which you'll be able to see in this piece. Tracy, I pulled two pictures for you. Okay. Do you want me to describe them? Please do. Uh, the first one is like so you know what's going on, but the second one's like a little treat. Okay. The first one is in the daylight, and it is two giant, giant, I'm talking like. They're 100 feet tall. Okay, 100 feet tall. I was going to say, I don't know, 12 people tall, which it's not terrible math on my part. Good job. Thank you. So they're huge, and it's just the kind of neck up of a horse. One is looking down at the viewers, and the other one is sort of head reared back looking up into the sky. And they're made completely out of what look like squares of metal making up the whole. Yeah, they're all made out of pieces of metal, and each one has 18,000 different components. Wow. And then the bottom one is at night. So you get the sunset view. But the thing that really sticks out is two things. One, there's, they're lit by what looks like flame. And two, they're lit up rainbow. Yeah. There's a lot of different images of this where they project a different light on them. So sometimes they would be blue or pink. But the rainbow one, I don't know why there's fire. But that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. So... Scott said of his piece, quote, The original concept of mythical water horses was a valid starting point for the artistic development of the structures. He also said that he, quote, took that concept and moved with it towards a more equine and contemporary response, shifting from any mythological references toward a socio-historical monument intended to celebrate the horse's role in industry and agriculture, as well as the obvious association with the canals as tow horses. So you can't see it in these pictures, but this park is by this canal. Mm. And Kelpies are a huge part of Scottish lore, um, but because Scottish canals commissioned this, they're 
referencing the the huge role that working heavy horses had in Scottish industry. Uh, to quote Wikipedia, quote, the Kelpies represent the lineage of a heavy horse of Scottish industry and economy, pulling the wagons, plows, barges, and coal ships that shaped the geographical layout of the Falkirk area. And we, Tracy and I grew up in an area with working horses, uh, mm-hmm. so it's really easy to remember how much humans relied on horses, not but a few decades ago. Oh, still, still. I mean, you it's not super close to where I live, but you can still drive out to kind of the Lancaster area of Pennsylvania, which is famous for having a, a huge Amish population. And it's every store and restaurant and place there has stables as well as a parking lot for them to park their horses. Yes. And that's just something that we saw growing up. Yes. And I'm actually very grateful we live so close to there because there's a specific feed store run by this wonderful Amish family, and they have given us so much advice on food and medicine and things for horses who were injured or needed extra. And um, 100% without a doubt, they changed the game for our much older horse. Um, Mm. So working horses, man, my little pleasure horses who just have to go out on a trail occasionally are better (laughs) for that. But... My last little detail, because I think that this is so cute, is that these two horses in the sculpture, who actually do look kind of demonic with the lighting. I love mm-hmm. it. They look magical. They're modeled after two actual horses. They're both Clydesdales. Their names were Duke and Baron. Oh, good job, Duke and Baron. At the time of the article, one was still working and one of them was retired. And they were just good old boys who... When the sculptor was like, hey, I need horses for models, uh, these <laughs> the Scottish Canals helped them get these two horses who would just be like, cool, we'll hang out here all day. Oh, I love that. That's so precious. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's that's Kelpies. Good job. That was awesome. Um, are you ready to, tran- to transition into a another aquatic creature with a very different energy yes because i know from just a little a couple little sentences about these figures that cropped up during my research for the last episode that this is going to be a little unhinged yes that is a great way to frame this i went through a journey so i started researching so i'm talking about the kappa and i started researching them and i was like this will be fun a japanese water demon and then as i was researching them i was like oh these are gross nasty boys and i don't like them and i was talking to my sister about them and was explaining what they were. And as I was explaining, I was like, laughing and enjoying telling her about it. And I was like, never mind, I'm back around. I love these little green ghouls. <laughs> Let's dive into it. Okay. I have to start the section off with a quote from Linda Lombardi's article titled, Kappa, Japan's Aquatic, Cucumber-Loving, Booty-Obsessed Yokai. Quote, Ever wonder why the cucumber roll is kapamaki when the word for cucumber is kuri? Come with us on a journey through the legend of the kappa. You may never look at that particular menu item the same way again. End quote. That's a, what? <laughs> we will get there. Don't you worry. Did you hear my nervous laugh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Traditional Japanese folklore tells us the tale of a green, human-like being with webbed toes and hands and a turtle-like carapace on its back. This creature is known as the river child, or kappa. It famously has a depression on its head called its dish, 
which retains water. And if this dish is damaged or its liquid is lost, either through spilling or drying up, the kappa is severely weakened. The kappa is one of many different types of yokai depicted in Japanese folklore. Remember from Rowan's episode on the kitsune that yokai are spirits and entities whose behavior can range from malevolent or mischievous to friendly, fortuitous, or even helpful to humans. So Rowan, I have a picture here of a drawing of a kappa from 1820. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, this is so cool because you can see the texture of the paper. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So... Uh, he looks like a a frog, a little frog guy, but with kind of like the face, the, a face that's more dog shaped with mm-hmm. fang like teeth and a turtle shell, but a turtle shell that's flat, not really round. Mm-hmm. And the sort of dish on top of his head actually, it also kind of looks like a hat as well. Like, it looks like a garment as well as perhaps a functional element. Mm -hmm. Yep, I can see that. And he also has um, his, his, his balls just hanging out. I I never even noticed that. (laughs) I can't figure out how to say it better. Uh, Hold on, on. let me back that up. No, we're keeping that. All right, if you scroll down. You'll see a book <laughs> illustrating 12 different kinds of kappa. How did you not notice that all of these little green men just are hanging out? It's clearly like a part of the lore. I'm going to tell you right now, it does not come up in anything I'm going to talk about. Oh, okay, sure. There's some unhinged things I will talk about, but dangling balls? Not one of them. <laughs> okay. Actually... <laughs> I will talk about <laughs> it's gonna get unhinged, people. Only unwilling and fable. <laughs> this is I've come fully back around to loving these little dudes. Okay. I, I went on a journey, but the one on the left in the middle of this picture that I'm showing you, does it not kind of look like the doctor from uh <gasps> Nightmare Before Christmas? Oh my god. Okay, okay, okay. So let me just say that this paper is it's covered in writing, which I, of course, cannot read. But it looks very much like, um, oh, like Tracy has a bunch of these, like uh, uh, pictures of like butterflies. And then on the side, it has like the scientific description of the butterfly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scientific illustrations. And, and mm-hmm. you get the the creature from every possible angle. And then it's also sliced in half so you can see its insides. Like this looks like more akin to a textbook in that there's here's like here's all the information you need to know to identify this little guy not like here's an artistic painting of this guy in magical shimmer yeah absolutely <laughs> yep yeah that's what it is it it's it's 12 different versions of kappas and they all look different and uh they vary which is something you'll see with kappa stories another translation of the word kappa is water sprites And due to the diversity of storytelling across Japan, the kappa are known regionally by at least 80, that is eight zero, other names. Wow. According to the video, The History of Kappa, the Weird Green River Monster by Tofugu, there are four main theories as to the origin of kappa. 
The first theory is that the name Kappa comes from ancient Japanese mythology. The Nihon Shoki, one of Japan's oldest existing historical records, tells stories of the Kawa Okami, or river deity. That's it. That's the connection. The first Kappa drawing didn't appear until 1713, 993 years after it was mentioned in the Nihon Shoki. Ooh, so not the best theory. The second theory is that Kappa are babies abandoned by families who couldn't or wouldn't take care of them. Stories of these children being thrown into rivers could be the source of the legend of an evil river being. So river monsters, not great for the health of children. On the whole, it seems not really. I have to say, the longer this podcast goes on, the more afraid I am of dark water. Like, and I don't know why, because I'm not more afraid of the woods. I'm not more afraid of scary houses. But 100% when I go swimming, and I never swim in a pool. Just when I swim outside, it's, I'm always like, well, this is, this is my death now. This is how I go. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, we both aren't big deep water people. That's been very clear from day one of this podcast. (laughs) It's sticky, it's slimy, it's deep water, we're done. The third theory of where kappas come from is that they're based on Portuguese monks. Jesuit monks arrived in Japan in 1549 and famously sported a very specific hairstyle. That is the hairstyle in which the center of their head was bald and the hair wrapped around that classic European monk hairstyle. Wow. So the hair and clothes might help explain the appearance of the kappa because their clothes are also very famously pretty baggy and cinched in certain places. But that doesn't explain why the kappa exist as they do. So was it supposed to be satire if we're saying it comes from the monks? Like, were they mocking them? Maybe, or it could just be that they got inspiration for, for the appearance of a foreign creature from these foreign people. Interesting. Okay. The fourth theory, the fourth and final theory, is that kappa are actually Chinese monkeys. Folklorist Kunio Yanagata found that kappa were called enko in some areas of Japan. This is a term for monkey that comes from a Chinese Buddhist parable in which a monkey jumps into a river trying to save its own reflection. Oh. And in some areas of Japan, kappa are not depicted the way that I showed you. They actually look more like water monkeys. They're hairier. They're, they have more humanoid features. And they're described as looking like small water monkeys, which lends a little bit more credence to that fourth theory. The... The monkey trying to save its own reflection is very cool. Yeah, it's like a four-line parable. Ugh. It's very short. Ugh. that's That happens so often that the story is only four lines, and being that so much time has passed and we don't speak the language it was originally written in, ugh. I want... I want so much more. <laughs> I know. We always do. We always do. But what I can give you now, at least, is a description of the appearance of these little green river monsters. Kappa are often described as human-like figures about the size of a small child. The arms and legs will often be humanoid, though webbed, while the rest of the body has mostly amphibian-like qualities. 
With blue or greenish skin or even scales and webbed extremities, one of the things that makes a kappa distinct is the turtle-like shell carapace on their back and typically a beak-like mouth. Some shrines are dedicated to the worship of kappas as a water deity in such places as Aomori Prefecture or Miyagi Prefecture. There were also festivals meant to placate the kappa in order to obtain a good harvest, some of which still take place today. These festivals generally took place during the two equinoxes of the year when the kappa are said to travel from the rivers to the mountains and vice versa. The best-known place where it has been claimed kappa resides is in the Kapabuchi waters of Tono in the Iwate Prefecture, though evidence of kappa can be found all over Japan. I'm excited now to tell you about my favorite characteristic of the kappa. You've told me about this even before you did the full gamut of research. You've been talking about this since season two. I think they're funny. Okay. My favorite characteristic is the top of their head. Because their hair resembles that of a European monk with that ring of hair around the bald center, though that bald center is not actually a bald spot, but that dish full of water. And remember that dish full of water. We will get back to it. Linda Lombardi writes, The turtle shell bearing kappa came from the east, and the kawatero in the west, which is more hairy and monkey-like. By the 19th century, the reptilian eastern kappa seemed to have edged out his western counterpart. Modern depictions of kappa are usually along those lines. Some of the other names for the Japanese kappa suggest the animals it might have been partially based on. Monkeys, turtles, and the now extinct Japanese river otter. The river otter was about two feet long and nocturnal, so a glimpse of it standing on its hind legs in the middle of the night combined in your mind with the features of other creatures that you know frequent the dark, watery depths could indeed make a fearsome monster. The otter certainly seems like a plausible origin for the hairy but aquatic Kawataro. They're extinct? Yeah, they're extinct. <sighs> Otters are so cool. Another class of snuggly looking could ruin your whole day. Animals. A hundred percent. They seem so sweet like their little river. Not the river dogs, but no, they will end you. Although, have you seen the video that's the otter teaching the person how it wants to be pet? Yes. It's so precious. And they hold hands so they don't float away and they have their favorite rocks. Listen, I'm gonna get emotional about it. <sighs> Back to kappas. They can be found in rivers, lakes, and other bodies of water throughout Japan. Children were warned about kappas, and to keep them from swimming in dangerous places, you'll still to this day see signs warning of dangerous creatures like kappa in the water. They're usually cartoonized, so you'll see a cartoon kappa with like a little kid standing next to it, and it says, warning, don't swim, kappa in the water. That's so much cooler. All we get is a little stick man bashing his head on the bottom of the pool. I know. It's, they're cute. They're really cute. I should have pulled some pictures for you because they're adorable and very cartoonish. Okay. As with all myths, the descriptions of this creature varies wildly across regions and over time. However, one thing has remained fairly consistent about the kappa, and that is its favorite food. Cucumbers. Mm. Uh-huh. In Edo, old Tokyo... 
There used to be a tradition where people would write the names of their family members on cucumbers and send them afloat into the streams to mollify the kappa, to prevent the family from coming to harm in the streams. In some regions, it was customary to eat cucumbers before swimming as protection, but in others, it was believed that this act would guarantee an attack. So Rowan, when you're looking at a cucumber roll on a menu, just know that it was named for its most famous devotee. First of all, I love a cucumber roll. I order them every single time. Oh yeah, cucumber avocado rolls are my go-to. I love them. I really just want a cucumber roll, but I want way too much ginger. So much ginger. Anyway, we're we're doing away with life preservers. It's eat a cucumber or drown from now on. The thing is, it's high risk, high reward, because it could either protect you or guarantee that a cop is going to come sniffing its way over. Listen, it's cucumber roulette. (laughs) (laughs) That's the name of my band. I want that. Trademark. (laughs) (laughs) Copyright. (laughs) Yes, copyright. So, so far, they seem like they're, you know, just little friendly water friends. No, no, no. No. I'm glad they don't. I No, I know there's going to be murder. Or death. There's going to be some stuff happening for sure. Yes, yes. You do not start with drowned children and end with cute little water dude. No, they're, they're definitely not. But here is my section on their good behavior. <laughs> okay. They're not entirely antagonistic to human beings, though they often are. But once befriended... A kappa may perform any number of tasks for human beings, such as helping farmers irrigate their land. Sometimes they bring fresh fish, which is regarded as a good mark of fortune for the family that receives it. They might also save humans from drowning. They are highly knowledgeable about medicine, and some legends state that they taught the art of bone setting to humans. Yeah, I don't have any more than that. That's so cool. (laughs) Isn't that great? But that's about it. That's uh, that's about it for their good behavior. So let's get into their naughtier side. As with many yokai, some individual kappas may be kind, benevolent, or even befriend humans, while others can be mischievous or downright malevolent. Kappa's actions range from the comparatively minor, such as looking up a woman's kimono if they venture too near the water, to the outright vicious, such as drowning people and animals. Similar to other river-dwelling creatures, kappa have been blamed for many drownings. It's said they lure their prey into the water and pull them in with their wrestling skills. They are also said to victimize animals, especially horses and cows. Whoa! Battle of the Kelpie and the kappa! (laughs) You're not going to like this next sentence. The motif of the kappa trying to drown a horse is found all over Japan. In many versions of the story, the kappa is dragged by the horse to the stable, where it is most vulnerable, and it is there it's forced to submit to a writ of promise not to misbehave. Yeah. Yes, choose your fighter. Kappa, Kelpie, battle, let's go. Oh, I don't even know who'd win, because the the Kelpie are sticky, but they're really strong, and kappa are also really strong, but honestly... I think my money's on Kelpie. Yeah, okay, yeah, here's the thing. The The big thing with the Kelpie is once you touch it, wherever you touch it, you're stuck. And the Kappa's whole thing is wrestling, so he can't yeah. not touch it. 
And he's vulnerable when his water dish is spilled or dries up. But if the Kelpie is dragging him back into the water, that does make it harder to make him vulnerable. It's true. How do you drown the creature that's usually the drowner? Mm-hmm. Drown, drowny, drowner. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, they usually drown. I everything. I still put my money on the Kelpie, but God, I love it so much. For someone who is not into scary water creatures, I'm so into scary water creatures. Mm-hmm. That's why you're not into scary water. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes Kappa will drink the blood of their victims, eat their livers, or take their shiri kodama. What is the shiri kodama? Well, no one really agrees on what it is. Some say that it's the human soul hardened into a physical form. Some say the shiri kodama in pictures resembles the Buddhist hojo, a sort of onion-shaped wish-granting jewel. Many depictions of the Shirikodama do indeed resemble that onion shape. The thing that makes Kappa kind of wild is that they're known to love human livers, and some say the Shirikodama was the human liver, or it was a ball blocking access to the liver, with the liver being the thing the Kappa actually wanted. Variations all over the place here. Okay. So where is this mystical soul ball? located you might ask can i try to guess please do oh i instantly regret this um i'm not gonna look okay mystical soul ball that looks like an onion Mm-hmm. um <laughs> in that spot in your lower stomach where you get a tummy ache uh yeah that spot very good guess really? very good guess the answer is actually the human anus. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, no. The kappa supposedly reaches into your butthole with its hand uh, to get this precious item out, or it will just suck it out. This is where I went on a downturn with kappa for a little while. <laughs> There's many depictions, some very grotesque, of the kappa ripping this out of a man's butt. I was about to be all excited about how I really like mythology where a person can lose their quote-unquote soul and still have to exist, but I I no longer wish to discuss that in <laughs> relation to this story. Yeah. It's that's why they are that's why the title of that article was Japan's water dwelling cucumber loving booty obsessed. But this is Okay. Uh, see it it, is it because it could swim up from below you? Is that, like, the thing? Yeah, yeah. There's There was actually, there's a lot of different ways this is depicted. There is one drawing of a friend mooning a kappa in the river as a distraction for the other friends to try and jump and, and defeat it, which is an actual drawing that I saw. So you can see where I came around to, like, finding it very funny once again. Kappa just destroys skinny dipping. Like, that... It ruins it. You cannot go skinny dipping near a kappa. Referencing Linda Lombardi's article, again titled Kappa, Japan's Aquatic Cucumber-Loving Booty-Obsessed Yokai, she writes that the kappa's obsession with our heinies also leads them to hide in toilets and try to stroke women's buttocks. 
But if that's all that happens, you're getting off easy. There are also tales of Kappa attacking women and leaving them pregnant with grotesque children. I thought you were going to say that this soul-esque thing resided in the throat or the center of the chest. How did we end up here? You you were warned it was going to get unhinged. But here's the thing. I get it. I do. I get it. Mythologies that are not based on goodness and badness and purity culture have this kind of thing going on. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense. Oh, it does. It does. And like I said, these creatures are sometimes helpful, sometimes malicious. You don't know what you're getting. And it's that gamble that I find that makes them interesting. And honestly, I just kept quoting the It's Always Sunny bit about little green ghouls all week, which is what made me like them more because that bit is very funny for those who know it. I have to say it. I'm sure everyone thought I was coming in with the scarier water demon creature. Yeah, of course. It's always me. Fine. No. (laughs) Kappa (laughs) is absolutely scarier. The thing is, they don't always kill you. You don't, you just, we don't know what the Shirikodama is. Okay, here's the thing. Um, Did you ever see the animated movie of The Hobbit? The one where Gollum looks like a frog? I know what you're talking about, yes. Okay, so my parents, who own their own business, and worked from my the home when I was very little, uh, would, in an effort to keep me distracted, would just put that on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, that scarred me, uh, the little frog man. So Kappa is too close. Is not it for you. No. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I go on a roller coaster with these guys. Sometimes I'm like, yes, a little green friend. Other times I'm like, nasty boys. Nasty. Tell me how to get away. All right. So here's how you defeat a Kappa. There are a few weaknesses we can exploit when defending ourselves against one. Remember that bald spot. That bald spot that holds a basin of water on their head is really important. Because kappas, despite every evidence to the contrary, are actually very polite. If you bow to one, it is compelled to bow back. And since kappa often like to challenge people to sumo matches, because remember they're great at wrestling... They can be tricked using this technique. Remember that sumo matches begin with a bow. So, when you bow and the kappa has to bow back, there's a good chance it could spill the water in its head, thus rendering it powerless. And in some versions of the tale, if the person refills the bowl for the kappa, then that kappa will serve the person for all eternity. Was there a single incident where the kappa bowed and the water did not spill out? Because my understanding of gravity means bow equals spill. I mean, probably because they love to sumo wrestle, so I'd imagine that would have stopped pretty quickly if every single time. Is the deal that the bowl has to be full when they're on land because that's the only water they have access to? Yeah. But if it spills while they were standing in water, it wouldn't be that big a deal? I think they could just scoop it back up in there. I wonder what the head motion scoop looks like. I mean, they have hands. They can probably just scoop them nope, with their... Nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> head first only. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so Michael Dylan Foster writes in the book, Pandemonium and Parade, Japanese Monsters and the Culture of Yokai. 
that one notable example of this method of defeat is the folktale of a farmer who promises his daughter's hand in marriage to a kappa in return for the creature irrigating his land. The farmer's daughter challenges the kappa to submerge several gourds in water. When the kappa fails in its task, it retreats, saving the farmer's daughter from the marriage. Kappa have also been driven away by their aversion to iron, sesame, or ginger. Yes. I and my cucumber rolls are safe. Yes, you are. You have both of their greatest desire and their enemy. We cover so many scary, like, stories scarier than this. I'm telling you, I'm sitting here and my heart is a little... (laughs) 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 They're they're wild, nasty little boys. I don't like frogmen. I don't blame you. I I didn't like these guys again at all until I was just belly laughing with my sister. Oh no. Oh no no. No no. I I see the picture you have coming up. No. Please describe it. Okay. Um there are steps leading down right into the water with some reeds beside and there's one person who's sitting on the steps who's curled up like a little in like a fetal position, covering his eyes and sitting next to a bucket. And then there's a man who's got his pants pulled down and his butt sticking out at these two kappa creatures. And it looks like he may be like fart laser blasting them. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it's called defense against kappa repelling with a fart. And the the kappa are running, screaming, I imagine. They're not fans of it. So that's your last defense mechanism. <laughs> I didn't anticipate how much I would break Rowan with this story. <laughs> I, I wasn't ready. You went with the majestic Kelpie, the horse creature that can lure you. And I went with fart monster. <laughs> <laughs> Kelpies are demonic horses. That are sticky and trap people and their hooves can be backwards and their manes can like entangle people. And I'm like, cool, we're good. And you come through with this butt boy and I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no. Okay, so we'll move on to depictions of kappa in, in media and art. So in order to explain the image I'm about to show you, I need to explain what a netsuke is. Uh, And it is a miniature sculpture originating in 17th century Japan. Initially, a simply carved button fastener on the cords of an inro box, Mm. which Rowan mentioned in our Kitsune episode, its box attached to kimonos. Netsuke later developed into ornately sculpted objects of craftsmanship. So I have a picture here of a Netsuke depicting a kappa. I mean, we don't have any color or even a ton of texture in this because it looks like it's carved from wood, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, this little guy looks, um, at least in shape, to me, more like a monkey. Like he's, Yes, he looks like that other form of kappa that's more of the m- monkey description than amphibian. Right. He's sitting kind of crouching on the ground. He's with one arm. He's holding his legs. I can't exactly tell, but it looks like he might have larger ear shapes and then there's that over his eyes that kind of classic like wider brow that you see with Mm -hmm. some art of monkeys yeah the difference is he looks like he's got more of the kappa beak yeah there's something going on there it's almost like a some turtles have beaks that are like that yes yes 
it's like the, it is a beak, but it's not like a beak beak. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly what it looks like. Kappas and creatures based on them are recurring characters in Japanese tokusatsu films and television shows. Tokusatsu is a Japanese term for live-action film or television drama that makes heavy use of special effects. This type of entertainment often deals with science fiction, fantasy, or horror. Examples including the kappa are in the series Yokai Monsters, the 2010 kaiju film Death Kappa, and King Kappa, a kaiju from the 1972 series Ultraman Ace. It's really cool that you brought this up because tokusatsu films are responsible in large part for yokai having a sort of resurgence in popular culture that extended outside of Japan. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, film is such an easy form of media for other countries to get their hands on. And I've read a couple pieces uh, for my last episode, but that talked about how this genre of film really just really inspired people to explore yokai again. Mm Mm-hmm. And they really did. Uh, You'll see kappa in a ton of forms of media. Actually, on my hike yesterday, I was talking to my friends about my research for this episode, and one of them said the video game he had just finished playing featured a a character inspired by a kappa, and that's what he knew. That's why he knew what kappas were. Really? That's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're they're all over the place. They're in the long-running anime One Piece, in which a self-proclaimed kappa appears in the Land of Wano story arc. In reality, he's a fishman who hides his identity as a kappa in order to avoid discrimination. Just like in ancient mythological lore, though, he is a sumo wrestler. He is a friendly samurai who serves under the previous Shogun of Wano. In the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 movie, uh-huh. Uh-huh, the Ninja Turtles were often mistakenly called kappa when they traveled back in time to feudal Japan. That's that sounds like it could be bad, but it, it, on the surface, it sounds really cool. It's it's an interesting twist to turtle people. That w- What would be the closest association they have? Okay, I'm sorry I keep going ahead, but are those little Pokeboys? Yes. So uh, we'll skip ahead. I'm so um, sorry. I just pulled <laughs> okay. such really cool pictures. <laughs> In Pokemon, Lotad, the water weed Pokemon, and its evolved forms, Lombre, the jolly Pokemon, and Ludicolo, the carefree Pokemon, are based on Kappas. So I have pictures of Lotad, Lombre, <laughs> and Ludicolo for you. Tag yourself. Are you the jolly Pokemon or the carefree Pokemon or just the water weed Pokemon? Oh, I'm fully Lotad, no thoughts, head empty. I'm the, that's me. Oh, you get to be water weed Pokemon? Well, I can't be carefree. That's just inaccurate. So I <laughs> guess I have to be jolly. I'm sorry, but you pulling the Pokemon is very cool. I love the way that yokai overlap with Pokemon mm-hmm. so much. I don't even know what these little critters are. I'm not even that invested in Pokemon. I just love them. They're cool. They pull a lot of really cool uh, elements from mythology and playing with words, and so they're really fun to see. The little dude in the middle, who I think is supposed to be the jolly one, looks distinctly depressed, and he's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm 90% sure that's Lombre. <laughs> in this picture, he doesn't look happy. <laughs> jolly is a job description, not a state of being. Thank yes. you. <laughs> 
I know of Kappas in video games mostly because I know of a Kappa named Captain, who appears in multiple Animal Crossing games, often as the captain of a boat willing to transport a player to different islands, though in other games he's a taxi driver or a bus driver, and he often sings about his love of cucumbers. He's so cute. I should have pulled a picture of him, too. He's precious. I have an important question, and I'm upset that I'm asking. Okay. Uh, with all of the um, attacks via bum of the kappa, mm-hmm. are we thinking that any of this is has some embedded homophobia, or are they just violent that way? Like, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I I totally know what you mean. I didn't see anything about it being in in reference to homophobia. But more as, and maybe it was, maybe that was like, oh, the worst thing we can think of. But it was always about taking something out of you. And that was just the way they did it. But maybe that is, again, a form of homophobia. I don't know. Listen, I'm not trying to put that on the mythology because, uh, like, I exist in America in 2022. Like, it is very obvious for my brain to jump there, but that doesn't right. mean that that's what was happening in the mythology. It was not heavily featured in any of my research that that was the origin for it, or even that it had to mean anything. I like that. I love that, actually. Yeah. Yes, it was great. The last instance I wanted to mention of Kappa in video games is in Final Fantasy VI. The, quote, imp status transforms a character into a Kappa, as noted by its distinctive crown and duck-like bill. Note also that the tutorial demonstrating how to use Gao's rage skill is given by an imp named Kappa. It's likely that this is not the character's name, but instead a descriptor of what it is, just an anonymous kappa, and the translator either left it as it was or just didn't catch the reference. That's fun. Yeah, I thought that was a fun fact. So, now it's time for my story about the kappa. I am so excited to hear what you have come up with. I struggled. I... Really, I I spent days thinking about what am I going to write for a story for the kappa? Because I kept fluctuating on, I hate these little things. I love these little things. I don't understand. And then I just wrote the first line. And then within 30 minutes, had most of the story written. It just flowed from me. This story came through me, not from me. Nice. I love that. Yeah. Have you ever seen a person without their soul? I have. My uncle lost something vital years ago and has never been the same since. Let me take a step back. Our family house sits on a small hill just over the banks of a river. It's beautiful, actually, all sparkling blues and greens from dawn to dusk. In fact, from our kitchen table, we can see the sun set over the water every evening. In summer, the water sparkled a particularly enticing shade of blue. So cool and inviting. But we were never allowed to swim in the water. The only thing we were allowed to do was walk to the water's edge once a month and leave a couple of cucumbers on the shore. Cucumbers that were always gone by the next morning. I begged my mom for years to let us play in the water, especially on the hottest days of the summer, but she always staunchly refused. It's too dangerous, she'd say. If you saw your uncle, you'd understand why. Any attempt at sneaking into the river to play was met with harsh 
punishment, and a stern lecture. My uncle, a man I had never met, became the boogeyman of my childhood, the ultimate weapon adults used against any kind of aquatic fun. I'm ashamed to say I even resented him for a little while. Until the day I finally met him. The infamous man I'd heard about non-stop growing up. Despite being told, you don't want to end up like your uncle, all my childhood, I I knew surprisingly little about why. All I knew is that he went into the river one day and came out... different. Staring at the man before me, I realized that different was an entirely inappropriate term. I thought different meant odd or unusual, but the real term they should have used was broken. The man before me was, at best, a shell of a person. Shallow, blank eyes stared back at me from a face devoid of any emotion. He spoke and moved like a person would, but he... He was empty. More like a robot than a man. So that's what it was to lose a soul. Everything that made a human... Human had been ripped out of my uncle years ago. I learned that day why I was never allowed to play in the river. That water... That water didn't belong to our family. Despite what the government might say, it wasn't our land to jump and swim and play around in. That water belonged to the kappa, and they made sure my uncle served as a reminder to us every single day that it was theirs. So I finally decided to do something about it. I was no longer a child, and it was my responsibility to protect my family. So one day, after a few drinks and a very motivational pep talk in the mirror, I marched my way down to the river. I waded in, the water soaking into the shoes I'd forgotten to take off on my walk down the hill. I know you're there! I know you're out there, Kappa! I shouted. I've come to challenge you to a game! Silence. The water lapped against my ankles in cold, small waves. My heart thundered in my chest as I waited for a response or an attack or anything other than this crushing silence. Finally, a response came, but not in the form of words. It was in the form of a lithe, small, green creature dragging its body up out of the water. I took several steps backwards so that I was once again standing on dry land. Beady eyes stared at me over a protruding beak as webbed hands curled and uncurled by its side. It took two steps forward and stood before me on the muddy banks of the river. I... I challenge you to a sumo match. I managed to squeak the words out through a nervous lump in my throat. Before I could think better of it, I bowed as deeply as I could, and I counted to five before standing up straight. This was the moment of truth. After a brief hesitation, the kappa, to my shock, bowed back. Deep and long, 
So long, in fact, that the water in its head spilled out. Slowly at first, then all at once in a rush. Shocked, the creature fell into the mud and struggled to get back to the water. But I was faster. I leapt into the water and scooped it up with my hands, depositing it back into the head of the kappa before it could do so itself. Those beady eyes glared at me with hatred and defeat. It spoke in a croaking voice. You may ask me one favor. You are to leave the people of this river alone. You and any other kappa out here are not to harm anyone who enters this river again. The kappa kept its eyes on me as it slowly backed into the river. The deal has been made. I sat on the shores for hours after it disappeared back into the water, shocked and shaking at what I'd just done. But the kappa was true to its word, and to this day no one has ever been harmed in that river. In fact, my niece was once miraculously saved from drowning by a force we still can't explain. Still, we left extra cucumbers out on the shore after that day. Nice. You gave us the happy ending we all deserved. I had to. My original plan for that story was just to talk about the uncle and losing the soul, but then I was compelled to have the main character interact with the kappa and to win the day. I was worried you would not do the croaking voice that you described, <laughs> and I'm very grateful. I, you, you made a very happy face when I did it. It was, it was lovely. <laughs> I find the appearance of Kappa so eerie that even your story, which was happy, I was, yeah. I was like, mm, maybe not, though. <laughs> yeah, I wanted him to be a little uncomfy. I wanted him to... He wasn't your little friend in this story. No. I'm... I'm so glad you covered this. <laughs> You've also been wanting to cover Kappa for a very long time, so this I is did. kind of like I... the mashup goal water demon episode. Yeah, it was fun. I didn't know as much about them. Like I knew I knew of them from like there's a cute Kappa in Animal Crossing. Like that was where I was coming into this. And it was so not that. I would like to hear everyone's votes now that you have stories and information. Mm-hmm. Kelpie versus Kappa, who's going to be the bigger, badder, water, scary? I'm curious if anyone thinks Kappa and why. Because we're both kind of like, mm, we do think Kelpie has an edge. Who would you want to face more? Because I am fully, I would want to face a Kelpie. I have experience with horses. I feel like I'd be better. Even though all I would have to do would be to bow with the kappa, I feel like I'd be better equipped to bridle a demon water horse. That's really cocky of me, but here we are. I agree that I'd rather face off against a Kelpie, but for different reasons. I just would never get that close to a horse I don't know. End of story. <laughs> I just, I would just not be in that situation. I would walk away from it. Apparently, I have nothing if not the audacity in this scenario. <laughs> I have encountered so many horses, I don't know, in the middle of the woods. It's just the lifestyles we live. The we lifestyles do. of the, the mythological and dangerous. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that was so good, Tracy. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh, it was so fun. You broke me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, hey, Tracy. No, you have to go first. It's your turn to tell me something good. Okay. My something good is that I painted the living room this really rich, beautiful, dark teal. Mm-hmm. And it came out so good. Our banister is gold and the walls are teal and it just looks so rich. But when I tell you, I swatched, like about those little tiny paint cans, I swatched, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know, maybe eight colors before I picked the one because yeah. I wanted – okay, you know what? Here's the question, Tracy. Uh, w- w- What is a blue-green? Not like give me an example, but is a blue-green greener or bluer? I always think of it as blue is describing green, so it's a very bluish green. Yes. The first color modifies the second color. Like a yes. green blue is a blue. That is how adjectives greener. work yes. in English. Thank you. Turns out not everyone thinks that way about color. It's very frustrating. But <laughs> I love teal, but I wanted a teal that some people would go, oh, that's a green-blue, and other people would go, that's a blue-green. Like, the whatever each one had going on with the cones in their eyeballs, it was mm-hmm. so perfectly in the middle that no one could agree. That is what I wanted, and thanks to Lowe's, I got it. <laughs> I'm so glad you found that color. You were hunting for it. I was hunting, and I got to use a skill that I haven't used since set painting in college mostly and that is painting a straight line without tape that is my like weird skill Mm -hmm. that i'm very proud of (laughs) um and i got to do it a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that was my week and i'm i'm happy about it tracy tell me something good i came into this episode with two different something goods and i think i've probably talked about them already which was my day yesterday you can and- only have one good thing oh <laughs> i'm here to tell you right now can't think of a single good thing except really just that i i got i'm getting to spend more time with one of my older sisters uh because they're she and her husband are house hunting they are they're such good cooks rowan that they basically don't go to restaurants anymore because the food they make is better and i can confirm it is you were telling me that they recreated the burger that you had when you were here in la yes the burger with fig jam goat cheese and arugula it was so good and the funny thing rowan is i went over and i offhand mentioned that i'd had i knew we were having burgers and they make they grind their own meat with their own ratios oh my gosh whole thing and I said, I had this burger in California that was amazing, and it had fig jam. And my sister looks at me and goes, oh, we have fig jam in the fridge. We can make that. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. She makes her own hot sauce, which is amazing, and it's this fermented thing that she does. Like, they just – they're big coffee people, so they've taught me a lot about coffee and how to make it even better. And it's just been – it's been really cool getting to see them and learn from them and – they make delicious food. So that is my something good. It is getting to eat delicious food with my family and also watch them play with my puppy who is a giant fluff ball. And it's really cute watching them just get really excited because his new thing is he likes to sit in people's lap if they sit on the floor. Right. Because he's a big boy and that's he's a big what boy. big dogs do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. By the way, my aunt just got a new puppy who's a burner. Um, so Malcolm's going to have a new big boy, a little lad to play with. 
And Malcolm's not going to be the petite one in that group anymore. He's going to be overjoyed. He's going to lose it. I have to reach out and see if we can get them all together. We went for one trail walk with Tracy's dog and my aunt's two burners. And it, we looked like we had an army of... If if burners weren't so kind looking and sweet, we would look like we had an army of like massive dogs. Yes. <laughs> They're just an army that wants snuggles. They were so sweet and they were so happy. So that's been something good. And, and Rowan, we did it. We did we it. We talked about water creatures. Everyone stay safe. Stay out of the water. <laughs> yes. And thank you so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik, our music is by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Eat delicious food with my family and also see them play with Malcolm because it's really fun watching them play with the little fluff ball who is currently crying that I'm not giving him attention. There is so much noise happening on both of our ends right now. We're so close.